0: Hello everyone and welcome to the Indefensible Plants podcast, the official podcast of indefensibleplants.com. What's up? This is your host Matt. Welcome to the show. How is everyone doing this week? I'm doing great, but I would be doing better if you considered supporting the show by picking up some of our customizable merch. There's links over at indefensibleplants.com whether you look in the show notes for each podcast or just click on apparel up at the top of the screen because conversations like you're about to hear can't happen without support. But speaking of this episode, we are revisiting a conversation I had with Mike Bone back in 2019. He is the curator of step collections at the Denver Botanic Gardens, and he is a true proponent of all things step and step plants. These are really important ecosystems, both ecologically and culturally, and they are all too often overlooked, but they have so much to offer. But who better to hear about all of this than from Mike Bone himself? His passion for this ecosystem and its plants is intoxicating, and hopefully he'll inspire you to give them a bit more of a deep dive yourself. So let's jump right into it. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Mike Bone. I hope you enjoy. All right, Mike Bone, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. How about you tell everyone a little bit about who you are and what it is you do?
1: great thanks for having me on my name is mike bone i am currently the curator of step collections for the denver botanic gardens my background and really my love and passion is in propagation of plants so i love seed collection germination theory practice but i also um, love rooting cuttings grafting trees um, all things propagation my job and my work at the botanic gardens has a lot to do with acquiring plants from the four great steppe regions of the world, getting them into display uh, here at the gardens, and then um, working with other institutions in and from steppe regions um, to collaborate and help build their collections as well as supplement ours.
0: Awesome. And as soon as I saw your description on the Denver Botanical Gardens website, I was like, this is someone I definitely need to talk to. Really excited to have you on, but I'm curious, what brought you to plants in the first place? Was this something you always had an interest in? Is it something that came on later in life? You know, what was your sort of introduction to the botanical world?
1: Um, It's it's a little bit of both things. You know, my, my grandfather was a dryland farmer in the panhandle of Texas, and summers I would go down and Pretend that I was helping him on the farm. I'm sure I was <laughs> in the way a lot more than I ever was help. Um, but, you know, I, l- I learned about agriculture and dryland farming and, you know, animal care. And, you know, so that was really empowering. And my father was an avid outdoorsman. He loved fishing and um, being in the mountains and road trips across the country. So I had this sort of love of the natural world already. I didn't know that I cared as much about plants as I do um, <laughs> until a little bit later. I was out of high school, you know, went to community college for a little while and just kind of unsure like most, you know, teenagers, early 20s, unsure what to do with my life. Yeah, um, And I was an apprentice with the uh, millwrights, so a machinist union. I was learning to be a machinist and um, sort of the bottom fell out of that. Our, our union local acquired four other states. There was this huge out-of-work list. Oh. And one of my friends was working for a landscape company and got me a job in their, um, they called it their colorscape scape division. So they had a small greenhouse. Um, They would buy in plugs and transplant them for color accounts, you know, so they did the flowers and the annual displays like on the 16th Street Mall here in Denver and in front of um, banks where you see just small little color beds. So I started working there in February when they were ramping up for the season and I sort of kind of, that's the moment it really clicked for me. I fell in love with that machinery Um, manipulating environments and and growing plants and you know all of the intricacies and mysteries that go into how to grow a thing so you take this from these wild places or you take a seed and germinate it and it really was the spark for me there Uh, and then from that point I had a obsessive study (laughs) and collection um, of plants
0: nice I uh, I definitely empathize with a lot of those factors and it's cool that it was this sort of recognition that you know a lot of people will say right. oh, I've got a black thumb and it's like well do you treat everything like it's the the pothos sitting on your your back door or in your windowsill and, and it's this realization that everything's kind of different in the plant world plants have their own needs and wants and desires and growing them is is can be a challenge it can be an awesome challenge to rise to but you it's it's that learning process of what each one wants and and needs to to successfully grow and survive and thrive and then to be able to be propagated that's that's a intoxicating sort of addiction to get into after a bit
1: yeah it leads leads down a a very slippery slope of having to have everything. <laughs> So, but it's fun. I love the inventive nature. You know, there's always something to learn. There's always, you know, you can create even simple things to make a task better. Um, So I find that really fascinating uh, as well. And it's, you know, I tell people all the time, you know, they think I'm an excellent grower and I do all these things, but I've, Sure, I've killed millions (laughs) more plants than I've ever been successful with.
0: Yeah, that's a hard one to get your head wrapped around, especially, you know, valuing life on this planet. You go, ah, crap. But I mean, that is the learning process to it all. I mean, there's no way around it, unfortunately. But it, it is the hope that you take what you learn from those mistakes and apply it to something living. And as a grower, I know many of us, myself included, go through these phases. Some people are just generalists, on the other hand. So did you... Have anything that really got you into it in terms of like, oh, I really love this group of plants, and then I went to this group? Or did you kind of just want to get your hands on whatever green thing you could possibly grow?
1: Um, you know, I really am fascinated with plants that have adaptations to really tough environments. Mm-hmm. You know, here in Denver, it's a steppe climate. It's dry. We've got cold, terrible winters. You know, Denver has these unpredictable Arctic blasts that can come in all the way up into June. So we've got a short growing season. We're connected to this beautiful mountain range. Uh, So just seeing these things where they're at and finding ways to bring them to another place, have them on display in a garden, um, talk about, you know, this sense of conservation or just a sense of wonder of plants from far off places. And I think it creates a spark and gets people excited about the natural world. So individual groups of plants that I'm excited about really changes by the minute and <laughs> what, I'm, what I'm looking at at that minute. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Excellent. And it's nice to hear someone else say that because it's so hard for someone to be like, well, what do you like? I, I, I like everything. And it's really a it's flavor of the week sometimes. Uh, but I do appreciate this idea of really enjoying plants that are hanging on in, in environments that would just kill us if we were exposed for too long without protection. And that's really admirable because some of them look so tiny and so delicate, but there they are just crushing it and in, in scree sometimes or just punishing UV rays and wind and snow and freezing temperatures. It is remarkable. And to be able to share that, like you said, with the public really... Uh, awakens something in a lot of people. So that brings us to what you do. I mean, you said steppe collections, you said there's four major steppe regions of the world, but I can't think of a a vegetation type or geographic type of community that gets overlooked more than that. I mean, what is a steppe vegetation? What does that mean? What does it mean climatically? Uh, what are these plants?
1: Yeah.
0: So the steppe,
1: you know, it's a, a Russian term um, that essentially means a treeless plain. So if you think of where the word or phrase was sort of coined, it's the open grasslands from that extend from Moldavia through Mongolia. Um, and often it's this concept of this sea of grasses, um, you know, when... They were first exploring North America. They saw you know, the, the Great Plains and they called it this desert of grass. Yeah. Um, and it's so much more rich than that. But you find these pockets of a visual monoculture. So you have this plane of this grass that stretches on farther than you can see. Um, but as you look closer, there's incredible intricacies in there. There's bulbs that come up in the spring, there's ephemeral flowers, there's perennials, there's wildflowers, there's small shrub communities. Um, So those things are really areas that we target. Um, And some of the things that make good plants for Denver, we look at areas that are actually worse than us, right? If it can provide <laughs> somewhere colder, or somewhere drier, or somewhere, you know, where the conditions get a, even more extreme than we know we're gonna have a chance of growing it. So it has to have cold winters, it has to have hot summers, it has to have arid to semi arid precipitation events. You know, we're often continental climates. But you get this visual monoculture, this sense of these wide open spaces and it elicits sort of almost this deep genetic response to this is where humans come from, you know, because that's how we've moved around the world is through the steps. If you think of the Silk Road, you think of the migrations of humans coming over the Bering Straits and chasing down the Rockies all the way into South America, um, humans movement and pathway. Over our life as a species is because of movement across the steps.
0: Wow. That really puts it into some context. And honestly, I'd never really thought about it that way. But I think in recent times, that's kind of been disconnected. And I'm really happy you brought up this idea of visual monoculture. And that's something that's articulated so nicely. And I've never actually heard that before, but it really encapsulates what's going on out there. And I think what a lot of people see, myself included, the first time I got out to the Rockies and experienced you know, the foothills, I was like, wow, this seems surprisingly uniform. But if you get out there, especially if you like plants, you realize that there's a lot of different stuff going on tucked into these little microclimates and, and washes and drainages and then I know, hills there's so much more. And as you even hinted at with what you were saying there, there's there's so many different lifestyles that plants can adapt to this sort of condition. And it's it starts to just blow your mind at the diversity in, in places that are kind of harsh.
1: Yeah, it's, it's fascinating, you know, and it, there's seasonality to it as well. I think that's one of the things that I find so fascinating and I think keeps my interest is that it changes week to week, it changes month to month. Um, you know, I think of people who have to suffer through these tropical environments where it's always the same temperature and there's always just an incredible amount of flowers always happening all the time where in areas like the steppes, you have this um these spring flushes with you know runoff moisture and you have geology changes and you have a sense of exploration and wonder but there's a vastness and you know sort of this chilling emptiness to how wide and how distant these spaces are and it's it's humbling and it's beautiful, and it's um, a sense to me, it's really a sense of of wonder and mystery uh, and constant exploration,
0: yeah, for sure. And again, going back to what you're kind of talking about with human history, it kind of ties it all together in a in a very almost poetic sort of sense. and And I could see now exactly why this is such an incredible region and why you're so perfectly situated there to start thinking about what these plants need to grow. But in talking about propagation, something that obviously consumes a lot of your waking hours, and I would assume some of your dreaming hours as well, is what does it take? I mean, where do you even begin with something like this? Uh, you know, you're, you're going out and trying to find these plants. Do you have target areas? Where, where does the sort of collection propagation story begin for you?
1: Oh, wow. Um <laughs>
0: It's I don't know that there's a
1: beginning. Hopefully there's no beginning and no end. It's this <laughs> it's this cyclical, you know, event. Um but we we definitely, you know, I mean we're fascinated and you know, we're off and doing work with our native flora, uh, which is incredibly important. You know, you you can't take a conservation message unless you know where you're at. So your sense of place and the universe being where you're standing. So the study and and growing of our native plants is incredibly important. Uh, And then we move out to these other regions. Um, You know, a few years ago, some colleagues of mine and I put out a book. About the steppe climates and that you know that was sort of conceived on a trip we were at in Mongolia and Kazakhstan we were in the Altai Mountains Mm -hmm. and we were studying kind of the alpine flora there because there's a lot of crossover speciation from the southern Rockies to the Altai Mountains but we discovered that the steppe flora is even more associated um, through even the same genus and species uh, through parallel evolution so you find the same ecological niche and you find plants that have similar adaptations and even similar looks so that started to gel and started to create this idea of creating and working with um, global steppe flora when we were on that trip and that sort of was the brainstorm and the inspiration behind the book that we published and then from there we continued to take this study and evolve, but we study um, Central Asia, South Africa and Southern Africa, and, and really large, largely the flora of Lesotho, and then the surrounding areas is incredibly important as far as the steppe climate. And then Argentina and the great Estepa Patagonica um, is incredibly important to us as well. And we study and we look at the crossover speciation. So that's fascinating is, you know, there's species that share um, North and South America. There's species that you find in South America and Southern Africa, and you find them in both of those places, but you don't find them in the other regions. And there are species that you find in all four regions that um, kind of tie all of these things together. So, you know, for me I look back at, you know, sort of this continental movement from Pangea and Laurasia and how things have split out and, you know, this convergent evolution and pulling and collecting and getting these pieces together to sort of put that puzzle together really is interesting. But when we go to these areas, we definitely target areas that are similar moisture regimes and, and climate areas. But we also find areas that have people that we can partner with because uh, plant collection is wonderful for the plants. But unless you're partnering with people, unless you have contacts to get you to the right places, it's a huge world out there. So. Build relationships with people in order to make these collections and make these things work. And um, through botanic gardens, you know, that's sort of this camaraderie or this <laughs> bit of a scientific community that works together. Um, so we find those relationship building things as important just in the acquisition part of it. And then when you get to propagation, you know, it's a whole nother level. So you're studying where they come from, are they fire cycle regions? Is it something that's consumed by an animal? Is this a fodder crop um, or something that maybe a little specialist gets in and after? And you look at the natural cycles and natural distributions of the plants, and that sort of is your immediate clues of what to do to germinate things and to get seeds to grow you know, one interesting example I think of a lot is the arrow bred irises or the arrows. You know, on the seed has this small arrow that is highly concentrated in a sugar that's attracted to ants. Yeah. Huh. Uh, And ants will come and they are attracted to that little sugary arrow that's on the end of the seed. And they drag that back to their anthill. But in doing that, they have scarified that seed. So they take the little sugary bit that they need. They've created the wound. The seed has moved away from the mother plant. And it's put in this gravelly soil that's been disturbed by the ants. And it gives it a chance to germinate and have this ideal condition. Wow! But unless you see this you know ecological pattern and what's happening with pollinators with insects with animals with all of the things around it you are looking at the seed and you've got what do i do with this thing (laughs) i'll I'll put it in dirt and it ain't doing nothing (laughs) So, so you have to unlock that mystery you have to do the research and so finding those things for me is really fascinating too
0: that is so cool and i had no idea the irises were doing that first off but in thinking about plant exploration, plant collection, and studying plants. I mean, you just outlined something really intricate here in terms of the way you look at the world and the way you, you know, target different areas and species and work with other people. And, and I can't hope but kind of hear this underlying theme of someone who's really intimately familiar with plants. And that's one thing I love about growers and, you know, whether that's professionally or just obsessives uh, as, as hobbyists in their home is just that intimate knowledge you get from being around a plant, watching it grow, tending to its needs. And I'm wondering how that kind of helps inform this process. I mean, there's so many times in science where we just are hesitant to say something because we haven't observed it or we haven't quantified it. But there is something to be said for that familiarity that comes from growing it that I would assume really helps your mission or at least helps you ask the right kind of questions to take the next step into ensuring that these plants come into cultivation and uh, have these sort of ex-situ collections, living collections maintained.
1: Right, yeah, and that's, you know, again, you know, I mentioned the relationship. So you, you seek out, and, you know, one of the things I do is I seek out, and I find those people who are specialists who are so passionate about one single living entity that they know it forward backwards and all different directions and you Communicate with them. You talk to them. You write letters you you know the digital era that we're in makes it easy to connect with people in social media settings where you can find information and um, so that that connection To people who are so passionate about these things is incredibly important But also it's not a patented process by any means, but <laughs> Develop this idea of just looking at a plant and what it has to go through on a yearly basis. When does it bloom? Is it following weather patterns? Does it take a certain period of light? And so the the study and and passion and patience that it takes to really look at a plant and what it does is really what it takes to to grow those things and what it takes to be able to work with them and have them and um, show off what these beautiful things are.
0: Yeah, for sure. I mean, again, just patience. And that's something that I think gardeners all have to learn at some point or another in their lives, whether they like it or not, is is plants do take an element of patience. But in thinking about, you know, the propagation side of that and patience with a lot of these step vegetation species, I, it probably changes depending on the lifestyle and, and the region. And like you said, some of the climate and fire regimes. But is a lot of the propagation done by seed collection? Are these species that don't lend well to uprooting and or dividing? You know, maybe some of the bulbs you can bring back, but is a lot of this done based on seed collections?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, especially when you're talking on in, an in international scale and and moving from places like Kazakhstan or Kyrgyzstan or Lesotho. Seed is the easiest way to move plants. And seed is a plant's natural way of moving itself. Um, You know, they don't have the same distribution methods that we do, but they're pretty effective at getting around the planet. So seeds, definitely. Um, Occasionally you can move some vegetative material, but there's a lot more that goes into that, especially, you know, today's climate, we're worried about viruses and diseases and all these things that move through plant material being moved. Right now, there's this huge fear, especially in Colorado, we've seen our first emerald ash borers. So we've got a small area that's quarantined, and we're realizing that You know, there's really not much we can do. Um, The last few years, we've seen Japanese beetle for the first time in the West. um, And that's been, you know, terrifying and horrifying for us. So being able to work with seeds, you have some more assurances that you have some things maybe a little under control. You know, I think control is... uh, a concept that we don't really actually have control of anything, but we perceive it. So bringing seeds in, you have less likelihood of transmitting diseases or insects. Um, And everything we bring in, we run through USDA inspection ports, um, we get permitted, and oftentimes we'll have to get phytosanitary certificates from origin to move things back and forth. So It's an exciting process, but it's also a very slow and tedious one. And it can take years to work out arrangements and agreements and permits and permissions to be able to get and move these things back and forth. Um, So, seed's definitely the way to go when you do those things. And then you get them here and you, you work on them and you grow them. And we run through hardiness trials and we trial them to make sure that it's not Going to have a potential to escape cultivation because one of the last things we want to do is be responsible for the next kudzu or mm-hmm. the next bindweed or uh, tamarisk or you know there's all of these species that come and replace and outcompete native vegetation and we don't want to be responsible for changing the ecology in those kind of ways. We wanna get plants to gardeners that are beautiful and help people understand a, a global message of growing the right plants for the right places. And we can do that through a process of germinating, growing seeds, trialing them, you know, there's, we have areas at the botanic gardens where we have trial gardens that are kind of squirreled away in back corners and we do population modeling and, you know, how many seeds and how far away and what are their distribution methods and things like that. So we, we take this very seriously, but we also get really excited about seeing oddball things blooming that we've never grown before.
0: (laughs) Uh man. I, it's funny because you hear, you know, the professional side of it and all the stuff that has to go into planning. And obviously a lot of thought and a lot of effort goes into that. But then underneath it all, you can still hear that childlike excitement of like, oh, boy, I get to play around and see what's going to happen. And there's going to be surprises and there's going to be some challenges. But it's this just joy. You can hear it in your voice of, of being able to kind of just play around with with natural things. That's incredible.
1: Yeah, just this week I had the first bloom on a plant that I collected. It was above Sani Pass in Lesotho, uh, is at one of the highest points in Lesotho, uh, and it's a plant called James Britinia jurassica whoa and it's this low ground covery thing that is really just intricate and sort of undulate foliage with these trichomes that make the foliage sort of glisten on it and it has these maybe dime to nickel sized flowers that are a beautiful rich purple and then in the center it's this yellow tube it's you know they're ACA. Ah. so they're members of the scroph family so they have this you know open face and then this little tubular base but that contrast of purple and yellow you know having seen that in we collected the seed and saw the plants in february of 2018 to finally have it blooming for the first time for me here at the gardens just two or three days ago. It was, I was getting, I grabbed it and was running around and <laughs> and taking pictures and it's all over my social media and you know so it's it is it's wonder and it's delight and uh, it's the reason that we do these things
0: Uh, that's fantastic and and in thinking about that you know going from a seed collection you've made sometimes a a while ago to a plant that's finally matured and flowering and your care is is incredible enough but that first step of germinating it I mean, that's a challenge. Anyone that's tried to grow seed, some things are easy, some things are not. And there's still, you know, pun intended, nuts I can't crack. And I, I think that's exciting, but also kind of challenging at the same time. It can be daunting. So, you know, what is your process like? I mean, obviously, there's there's other collaborative work, other people growing certain things. But from your perspective, as someone that has these seeds, it's one thing to read this stuff and another thing to actually get it done you know, do you look at cues of, like you said, the lifestyle of these plants as as mature specimens to give you an indication of what they might need, or thinking about you know just the seed structure with the iris you mentioned, Where do you start even trying to germinate a seed?
1: Well, I've been germinating and growing seeds for a long time. Um, <laughs> if I've got something brand new that I've never worked on, I go back and I look at what's it related to. You know, you go back to that sort of familial level. And okay, well, there's other members of the family. Okay, well, these are in commerce and this is something you grow, you know. So I look at what protocols are or what people or research has been has happened on similar things or as close a relative as you can find. Um, you, you have to do some digging and you have to do some research, but you can find a lot of things have been grown or a lot of cousins of things, so to speak, have been grown. So I'll start there. Um, and then also I, you know, usually have enough seed that I can work with something that I'll do dissections. So, um, I get in and I see how thick is that seed coat? Is that embryo really fully developed inside of something? Um, so understanding the seed morphology, um, where it's at, what it what it looks like when you've dissected it, you know, crosswise or lengthwise, you know, so just an interesting example of that is a group I'm fascinated with are the Western North American areogonums yeah. or the you know, the sulfur buckwheats and, you know, it's a huge group, but they all have these beak shaped seeds. Hmm. And at the tip of that beak is the radical end of the root. And if you're cleaning those seeds and, and getting them out of the flower parts, if you damage that, you've essentially killed that plant. So huh. you know, even how you clean the seed away from the chaff and the and the detritus is really important. And that affects germination and wild species often don't have high levels of germination like purchase seed. Um, So looking at where they come from, looking at familial associations, doing seed dissections, um, looking at timing of year is a big deal as well. When does it set seed? If it sets seed late in the fall or late in the season in a cold area, or an area that gets snow and cold and freezing, you can almost be assured that there's going to be some sort of chemical dormancy built into that so the seeds don't germinate right away. Mm. It has to have a cold stratification to overcome that. So, yeah, like we've talked about the ecology of a place and when does it set seed can have a lot to do with where you start. So knowing the life cycle of the plant, knowing the seed's, and where they come from and when they're generated has a lot to do with where I'll start.
0: Hmm. And again, just that familiarity that you need to have with a single species probably teaches you so much more about the ecosystem that they hail from, the climate that they hail from, the geology, all of that stuff. And it's, and it's all based out of wanting to grow a plant. And that's what I try to communicate a lot with people is just, there's so much more to this than just, Ooh, it's pretty, you know?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I can put it in a windowsill. Why is it dead? <laughs>
0: yeah, darn it. So, I mean, in thinking about the mission following germination, you want these plants to grow. You want to be able to propagate them. You know, you're, you're at a botanical garden, you're breeding plants, right? I mean, what, what is it like after you get a species to start growing? You're not just going to keep one or a couple in some pots tucked away. I mean, this is, this is, there's a bigger mission at hand there, right?
1: Right. And, you know, so a lot of it's about having things on display. Some of it is about just getting specimens and having them as part of a collection. You know, we we work with a lot of different groups and a lot of different agencies and and things like that. So we'll do um, research for people, and sometimes the research at our end is just getting something to germinate, developing some sort of practical protocol so that a land manager can go back and take those into practice for restoration or reclamation. So, we do a lot with those plants. And then once we have them as collection items, then we can think about, well, is it display worthy? Because, you know, sometimes a plant is ecologically important. It's rare and it has, you know, attributes that are important ecologically. But you look at it and it's just not pretty. So, you know, that and that's OK. Um, it's OK to have those. But when you have things that are really beautiful and tell a story and have something behind it, um, then you want to capitalize on that as well so like my my James Britannia you know right now I've got you know 32 36 plants of it and the first one bloomed and we'll trial that in other areas and figure out how do we get it from my greenhouses into a garden space, what does it want? So we'll try it in different areas and I'll go back. Knowing that the plant comes from alpine rocky sort of scree areas and is needing, you know, that tough soil environment and I'll grow it in a crevice that's filled with gravel and sand and and kind of watch it but I'll put it in a cool area because we are really high in the mountains so we'll try them in different areas in the gardens and you know I'll try it in you know mixed with some other things and maybe tucked underneath some grasses to give it a little shade and protection Um, So I'll try it as a chasmophyte. I'll try it as a prairie plant and we'll get it in different areas. With the James Britannia as well, I have other species and, you know, you'd mentioned breeding and, and crossing plants. So as soon as that James Britannia bloomed, I took it around, showed everybody, took a bunch of pictures, and then we harvested the pollen from it right away. Um, And we'll use that pollen to try to make some crosses with similar species. And, you know, that's where we get into sort of the mad science of, you know, (laughs) crossing, you know, a desert species with an alpine species and see what happens. And, you know, are they compatible? Because I think there's probably no formal breeding programs for the genus James Britannia. I think most people haven't even heard of it. So we'll we'll do that and we'll also store some pollen just to keep up diversity. So if we have one single plant but we've got and harvested pollen from several, we know we can take those back and cross and keep things alive because we don't know right now if it's self-fertile, if it needs different genetics to be able to pollinate it. We just don't have that information yet. And that's some of what we work on and that's some of what we build uh, is that information background. Okay. Well, these are, if you only have one, you're never going to get seed because it's, you know, not self-compatible. So you've got to have pollen from somewhere else. And, you know, at a botanic gardens, we do that in a lot of different ways. Um, So we share pollen with other gardens, we share seed with other gardens and we keep try to keep some level of this genetic diversity available and going.
0: Wow. And, it just, from what you described, sounds like there's so many different layers to this. I love the fact that it's kind of like you said, this sort of mad scientist element of, well, what can it work with? Is it compatible with itself? Is it compatible from a species farther up into the mountains? That sort of deal. But then the curiosity and and data side of it is that you were actually doing some of this oftentimes for the first time, or at least the first large scale attempt, you know, large being a relative term. But how many of this is all born out of the fact that so many plants are still these great unknowns. You know, most of these obscure genera aren't going to have specialists or anyone putting any effort into trying to grow them, let alone obtain them um, for any sort of major display or scientific purpose. So, so much of this curiosity then lends so nicely to bigger questions of horticultural viability and, and conservation on top of all of that.
1: Right. I'm, I'm a firm believer in the old saying or the phrase that propagation is conservation. Um, if we know how to grow it, if we can do something, if there are um, gene banks and genetic reserves at botanic gardens or in people's gardens, then you have a chance of keeping some of those things going. You know, there's an incredible rate of extinction happening in insects and birds and plants and all of these things. And we have a means of preserving some of that. We can't always stop and recorrect some of the tragedies that happen to environments, but we have opportunities to be able to have some sort of genetic memory stored with us. Um, Our gardens over the last several years has been involved in a program called the Global Genome Initiative, where botanic gardens are taking their collections and taking samples and preserving them so that genetic work and genetic study can be done. So we're essentially trying to collect through a collaboration of Botanic Gardens, all of the genetic diversity of plant life in the world. It's kind of the lofty goal. But <laughs> when we make these collections, you know, you snip off a few leaves, you put it in silica, um, and you go through a process of storing it. So it's interesting. It's fascinating how those things work.
0: Yeah, and it's, it's really cool to think about not only are we having like seed banks that everyone can kind of get their head wrapped around of storing seeds, but also, like you said, you're, you're also storing pollen. So at least if you have one plant, you have the potential of, of a lot more pollen than you would potentially uh, a seed, so to speak.
1: Right. Um, and, you know, pollen's an interesting thing. And there's a few more precautions that you have to take beyond that to store it and, and expect some long-term viability. Um, seed, especially for us in the arid West as a, fairly easy thing to to store and have for a while. But we work with, you know, like I said, different agencies. We work a lot with the um, NCGRP, which is the National Seed Lab um, in Fort Collins. You know, when we do work with rare plants, especially native flora, we, we share seeds and they keep it cryo-preserved there. And then we try to, with our pollen collections. We don't have a formal pollen collection at DBG yet. Maybe something will develop eventually, but right now we're doing just sort of short-term storage and and we try to use it and and keep it going. Um, But it's a constant cycle of harvest and replacement and, and things like that.
0: Cool. And and kind of going back to something you mentioned earlier was that this idea of propagation is conservation. And there's a huge, hugely overlooked role of just gardeners in this process. Gardeners, like you said, keeping some of these obscure things alive or even non-obscure things alive in captivity, or at least keeping some of that genetic diversity preserved, whether that's in their garden, on their windowsill. You know, there's a big role to play there in horticulture. And it's something we need to really embrace a lot more heading into the future where plant extinctions are unfortunately, uh, a, a big deal and something that gets overlooked way too often. And and you had mentioned uh, in some of our correspondence that, you know, this idea of plant selection being a big process there. And, and you know, I'm sure that goes hand in hand with some of the breeding and the propagating that you do. I mean, what is that process like? And what does that really mean for, for horticulture and, and gardening as, as a sort of a big picture idea?
1: Yeah. Um, you know, conservation is a, is a, a thing that I think anybody can be involved in. And some of it's just, you know, getting out to, you know, your local native habitats and, and finding an appreciation for native and natural things that are blooming there. Um, what we do and a program that we have at the, that we're involved in at the Botanic Gardens is a introduction program called Plant Select. Uh, and it's really a marketing and Plant Recommendation and Introduction Program. Um, and it's there's partners, it's our local land grant schools, CSU, the Denver Botanic Gardens, and a consortium of local propagators, growers, wholesalers, retailers. So there's these three sort of different segments of the world that work together to produce plants and get plants, good plants, or environmentally, I guess, Appropriate plants into the hands of gardeners. And it started as a way to kind of get plants from steppe regions and, you know, this high, arid, cold West, get plants that come from those areas that are really beautiful into the hands of gardeners. Um, and it's a way for the botanic gardens to, you know, open up collections. And our university gives opportunity for students to do research projects and, you know, get degrees. And it turns out a product that local garden centers and, and can be proud of selling, saying, hey, you know, the botanic Gardens found this. The universities have tested this we're bringing it to consumers. And it's something that I feel really good about. And it's something that as a way that we can keep interest in these things and, and new things coming, you know, so as we're hybridizing, we're taking pollen, we're making crosses, we're growing things, we're looking to create novel species, we're looking to create interesting things and color breaks and um, and also bring native flora to the marketplace. Cause that's one thing I see lacking a lot. You know, you get to some of these places and people are so impacted by oh my God, it's four inch color. I have to have this blooming thing right now. And they take it home and it's completely inappropriate for anything you would ever do or grow. And it makes you happy for that little while, but then you have this letdown once it dies. But if you're growing and gardening with these perennial plants that come back and they add to the ecology of a place, they're good for your local and native pollinators. They're beautiful. You know, bringing these native things into the hands of consumers, I think it just wins. And again, it's delivering a message of, not just local conservation and not just promoting native flora, but that the whole world has beautiful places to it and and you can appreciate those things from afar. Some people may may never go and and climb to the Potanin Glacier in the middle of the Altai to look at, you know, Troleus, where someone who's gone there, collected, and can tell the story of, you know, shrinking glaciers and threats to wildflowers and plants and, and bigger ecology threats with the loss of glaciation. They can look at a flower in their yard and say, I understand it. I get it. There's a big world of beautiful flowers out there, and I'm a part of it. Not separate
0: from it. Wow. Yeah, that's that's extremely thoughtful. And I think again, this this layering of of why this is all so important, I I really appreciate it because there's so many hooks to get people involved that you know might not even be aware of, or if you are, there's you can just pick and choose whatever excites you the most. But thinking about this idea of what the average person can do, because climate change is a global issue, environmental issues are a global issue, and, and feeling you know overwhelmed and distraught is a commonality among people who are waking up to these sorts of plights uh but here is a perfect example of like the think global but act local it's it is you know despite there being a lot of institutional support this feels very grassroots this feels extremely localized to a region of the world where gardening can be a challenge especially if you know you're selecting species even native species that are grown in in giant nurseries over in the Netherlands that aren't being selected for our climate, despite having originated here. You know, this is something that's being done on the doorsteps where it matters, where it counts. And then, like you said, connecting people to these faraway places by what's growing in a botanical garden or in their garden, if if it's if they're lucky enough, that's so vital because Like you said, who has the time, money, or even the ability to get to some of these spots, let alone get up to where you need to be to see some of this stuff and and make those connections that are really happening and, and are a reality we all need to kind of face sooner or later, Right.
1: Yeah, I think there's so many pressures and, you know, you look at just what happens in the world and, you know, the Denver Gardens is in an urban setting and we're surrounded by buildings and high rises and all of these things. And we're this little oasis. But you see the kids that come in for school programs. There's so much disconnection from the natural world. We're put in front of computer screens and these traveling cell phone, smartphone things that keep us so disconnected from touching soil from climbing a tree from you know these these connections to the natural world that little things like that um that can can spark a message and spark an interest and just make people aware of their surroundings you know i know we're not going to solve all the world's problems, but if we can get a little chlorophyll smeared onto some children's fingertips and bring someone a smile when a bulb comes up and blooms or a flower starts for the first time, um, I feel like we're making tangible differences, not only in the quality of people's lives, but in the protection of the planet and resources that we all need.
0: Yeah, for sure. And that's, Again, it's it doesn't have to be these large, I'm a superhuman sort of movements. If it's getting a couple people to grow a plant that's largely overlooked, that is still a victory locally. I mean, that's something that needs to be embraced a lot more is that it, it can be these tiny little steps. Is like you said, just getting a little bit of chlorophyll on the kids' hands. I mean, that can make a big difference. I mean, look at people like us. You never really know where that spark's going to come from, but it could turn into a lifetime of celebration and, and growing.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's, it's fun and it's rewarding to see that. And, um, it's a big part of the reason why I maintain this passion and this obsession for, for what I do. It's really, a um, you know, I feel incredibly lucky and blessed to be positioned where I'm at. Um, there's a lot of work that goes into it, but I can't imagine not doing hmm. this. It's, you know, I, I have a greenhouse at home and I have gardens at home as well. So, you know, I've, I come to work and I do this I go home and I do this I write books about doing this I you know it's 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 incredible and it, you know at the end of the day I feel and I have a knowledge that I'm not just skating through this life not contributing back um, that's something that's very important to me is to know that I'm trying to be part of the solution not adding to the problem
0: Excellent. That's a sentiment I think a lot of people can can appreciate and, and hopefully embrace. Um, you know, you've mentioned throughout this talk that it's it's everything is your favorite depending on the week, and and you've got successes all around the corner. But I'm curious, in moving forward, you know, what are some things, some challenges? Are are do you have any goals in mind over the next few years that you're really trying to tackle, or is there a group of plants or maybe a certain species that really excite you and you want to try to get to know a little bit better, try to propagate?
1: Yeah, definitely. Like I mentioned, the James Britannias, um, that one is right now very much at the forefront. Um, I've got three species blooming in the greenhouses right now and just crossing those. I've had a lot of difficulty getting them to root from cuttings. So figuring out how to get a vegetative clone going is is important. Um, And then getting these things propagated so that we have enough to put out on display. So the James Britannias right now are really interesting and important to me. Um, I'm also very interested in the groups Dracocephalum and Scutellaria. Those are in Central Asia. I would equate them to Penstemon's in North America. You know there's Dracocephalums and Scutellarias that fit every ecological niche from high Alpine to desert species and everything in between. So we're working on, and over the last probably five or six years, I've been developing a more targeted breeding program with Dracocephalums and Scutellarias. So we're starting to see some fruitfulness come from those. We've identified species that we think have the right physical characteristics and you know, showy enough flowers or interesting enough growth habits, but aren't pernicious or aggressive. So we've identified our stock species and we're starting to make intentional crosses. And you know, one of the things I think that is fun or easier to do in some breeding programs is hope for sort of that happenstance, Mm -hmm. So we're plants that we think will be compatible, planting them incredibly close to each other and just hoping for generalist pollinators to come in and just have some curiosity pollination and, and kind of see what comes from that. But there's also a few things we're really targeted and we know which species we want for seed parent and we know which ones we want for pollen parent and what we're trying to look for and what traits we're trying to get expressed in in other plants. But again, that's another group that's not really worked with very much. So the, you know, the phenology of them and, you know, these, the relationship trees of what's really closely related and what's potentially compatible, There's not a lot out there, so we're kind of treading new frontiers on that end with those groups of plants. And there's a lot of interesting things and um, there's a lot of adaptations and color forms and flower types and sizes from ground covers to upright perennials that I think there's going to be a lot of interesting things coming from those groups. You know, Botanic Gardens, we've sort of been the capital of Della Spermas for a long time. So it's it's fun to see other groups start to develop from our work and from our collections and from our passions.
0: Wow. That is both fascinating and super exciting. And I, I gotta say it's it seems like uh, this is the perfect job for someone like you. Uh, you've really you've really nailed it. <laughs>
1: Yeah, it's, it's great because I, I feel like I get bored quickly. And that was my biggest problem in the production nurseries is, okay, I just grew another 10,000 Stella de Oro daylilies. Now what? I want to figure something else out, you know. Yeah. Being able to work with incredibly diverse groups and, you know, research and find and, and move around, I think it's definitely something that I need.
0: Excellent. Well, good on you. um, Mike, thanks so much for talking with us. If people want to find out more about your work, maybe buy your book or check out what's even going on at Denver Botanical Garden as a whole, how do you recommend they find out more?
1: Well, you know, the Botanic Gardens website is a great way to find out all about the things that are happening at Denver Botanic Gardens. Um, So that's botanicgardens.org. I keep a social media hashtag for a lot of my um, posts of plants and interesting things and travels that I do is hashtag stepsons, <laughs> And I, I love the little double entendre there. So it's S T E P P E S U N S. I love um, it. So you can find me on social media. Um, you can come check out the Denver Botanic Gardens and all the amazing programs and gardens and research and um, outreach and, Things that we do there, you can find them at our website.
0: Great. Well, Mike, again, thank you so much for talking to us and and really kind of enlightening us on what's going on with step vegetation and and thank you for what you're doing for plants around the world. It's super important.
1: We love it, and I can't, like I said, I can't imagine doing anything else. It's something ingrained into me.
0: Well, keep it up, man. Thank you so much. Hey, thanks for having me on. Yep. Cheers. All right, amazing stuff please check out the Denver Botanical Gardens website. And if you're ever in Denver, go visit it. It's amazing. And if you see Mike, give him a high five and ask him about some of his favorite step plants. As always, all of the relevant links can be found in the show notes over at indefensibleplants.com. Just head on over there and click on the links so you can learn more about the topics we discussed in this episode, as well as all previous episodes. While you're over there, consider supporting the show. There's a lot of links on how to do that as well. You can pick up a copy of my book, some of our customizable merch and stickers. You can also become a patron over at patreon.com slash plants. All of those are excellent ways to help keep this show up and running, and I couldn't be doing it without support. So thank you to everyone that's pitched in thus far. But that is entirely enough out of me. I thank you all for listening. Make sure you hit that subscribe button and keep checking back in. But until next time, hang in there, stay healthy, and get outside if you can. This is your host, Matt, signing out. Adios, everyone.